So what I'm going to do um, is go through like eight separate ways of talking about the gospel. The first six, let me see how many we can get, get in. The first six are um, more about just getting at what is this thing, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and ways to kind of get into it and place yourself in it and, and make it apply. And then the last two are going to get at more how I think about, how I talk about the gospel changing you. Those are very, going to be very scriptural, connected to two main scripture passages. The first uh, six things are more like pictures. And um, I didn't give you a lot of material on that sheet so that you wouldn't feel like you have to be looking at a sheet while I'm talking. But, but I'll kind of give a space at the end of each thing to say, does something come to mind to jot down? Because there's blanks there related to each thing I talk about. And the point is to really try to, try to think of stuff that you'll jot down that will help you um, somewhere in these. Maybe, maybe you have some blanks, you just don't have anything right now. But hopefully you have a few that really like, wow, that, that crystallizes something for me. And it gives you some, some fodder to kind of um, be as a part of your process, processing the gospel in your life. Okay, so um, you ready? The gospel? I'm going to do some drawings. So number one... I won't draw much for this one. Um, the first picture of the gospel that I want to share is uh, it's very scriptural, and it's the prodigal son story. So think about it as this heading, um, being at home with God the Father. So real quickly, because I, I could make a whole sermon out of this. Just real quickly, you picture with the prodigal son story, um, you have the son who wants to get away. Being at home with the father is no good. He's got a better plan. And in fact, the way it comes off in scripture is that it's very offensive how he leaves. So it's very dismissive of, his, of, of what being at home is and who dad is. And he leaves to make a life for himself and takes his inheritance early. Um, so eventually he runs out of money and he hits rock bottom and he has this awareness of, you know, I'm being treated horribly now in this other country because I have nothing by all these people. You know what? The servants, the high, like the hired servants who are kind of like nothing in the kingdom of my dad over there that I left, they're treated better than me. So he has this moment of awareness of, of his need that being at home was actually better and is where he, he can thrive. And so he starts coming back and he has a speech prepared of how he's actually going to work his way back in, not to the same place he started at, because he know he gave he gave that up, and he knows that he's offended beyond re- reparation or repair. So he goes back with the speech ready, prepared to say, um, and this is Luke chapter fifteen. This is a biblical story. I'm adding some of the interpretation into it. He basically comes back with this plan to say, he he, he prepares the speech sort of on the way. I'm going to go home and say. Dad, I'm sorry, um, uh, please just let me work off my debt um, to the, un, by being like a hired servant so that I'm like indebted to you still. There's no way I can get back to where I was, but at least the debt that I took, the inheritance or whatever, I can work off over time to get back into better than I'd be over here if I stayed running away. So he comes and he, he gets a few sentences or a few words into the speech the dad runs to him, um, embraces him, and doesn't let him get into the speech. Um, gets a robe, you know, the whole nine yards, everything. It's a robe put on him, a ring puts on his finger, 
you know, the, the, the ring of dad's ring goes on his finger and he throws a huge, gigantic, lavish party because this lost son is home. And he reinstates him immediately to that old status that he had at the beginning as a son. Um, and it's just like this, culturally speaking, it's this huge point of like, you're kidding. That would never happen. Okay? So you get a sense of, okay, that's, that's the gospel. That's how God treats us. That's how incredibly amazing it is. And then the sort of the cool second part of that is that there's this older brother who um, is pissed off, basically, about, um, you've done this for him. I never ran away. I'm doing all these good things. And then the beautiful picture is, at the end of the story, the runaway son, um, who was terrible, is in the party the older son, who's been doing everything right, is standing outside the party, and we don't know. He's getting this invitation from the dad. Come on, you're, you know, you're in the party. Everything I have is yours. Kind of like, it's the same for you. Come on in, be a part of the party. And, and then you're left with this cliffhanger of will the older son come in and be a part of the party. So, so many levels of analysis, so many ways to kind of picture yourself in there. Here's some firm, hard things that I take from it that I think we need to know about God's relationship with us and the gospel. Is that, okay, so like, how does God approach you? Like, you're thinking, God, what is God like? What's my relationship with him like? Um, let me say a few things. You don't have these on your handout. Some just conclusions. Um, the Father always meets you with an embrace. He always comes running with an embrace. Secondly, he's not going to let you work it off. He's not going to let you work your way into his good graces. He's just not going to let you do it. That's not how he works. Um, three, he, in your relationship with God, even though you want to work it off, even though you want to work up to a certain status, the actual way that it works with Jesus on the cross is that he changed your status now. He actually changed your status 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's done as soon as, you, as soon as you turn to come home and realize you need it, your status has changed. You're there. All you ever needed, all you ever wanted, you're home now. Um, and then, what, this is what God loves to do. When you realize you need to be home, when you have that realization, God loves to make home totally satisfying to you. He loves to... Once you realize, kind of yielding to just, you know what, my, you know, what I thought life needed to be, all the plans, all the me, 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 I'm going to run my life. As soon as you turn from that, he loves to show you how satisfying it is to come home. Uh, and then, let's see, number five. Uh, this is, applies directly to church, because what happens is the Father invites self-righteous people home as well. Because you think... Okay, what's cool about this, he invites someone that's like a runaway and has basically given God the middle finger, you know, the, the one finger salute with life. He invites those kind of people home and we kind of say, yeah, that's grace. But then there's this, I think, even higher level of grace. The self-righteous person is invited into the same party with the same grace. So in church, what you get, in churches that are full of the gospel, you get both rescued runaways and rescued self-righteous people in community together. And so for me, I'm always kind of speaking to both kinds of people. And often you turn from being a runaway to kind of coming into the party, but then 
becoming a self-righteous person. So you can kind of have that journey of being in different places in different stages of your life. Because, like, oh, I, I was saved, and I was saved by grace, and I got into the church, and then I started to learn the rules. And then I got good at the rules of church, and then now I'm looking down on other people who aren't doing the rules right, and suddenly you're out of the party again. So there's this, this way that the gospel speaks, and, and both kinds of people are won over by the exact same thing, just the, the, the embrace of the Father, the grace of God. Okay, so on, on your sheet, uh, this is sort of like place yourself within the story, and the questions go like this. Which of the following 12 options best describe you? If you went through our intro to City Life class, you've, you've seen this before. Uh, is it maybe one of these younger son categories? You A, never left home. B, still at home but itching to leave. C, in a distant country, having a blast. Uh, D, starting to realize I'm in a pig pen. E, nervously on my way home. Or F, back home and enjoying the party. Uh, or maybe something in the elder son uh, trajectory fits you. A, working in the fields out back. B, feeling cold and left out. C, serious and bitter, asking the servant what's going on. Uh, D, making snide accusations against your little brother. E, angry and depressed. Or F, inside dancing at the party. All right, so that's, that's the gospel through the lens of the prodigal son story. Um, being at home with God the Father. Now let me, with a couple of these, let me, let me uh, kind of freelance a little bit. Let me do the, some, some Mark stuff. Um, it connects to biblical stuff, but it's sort of like some creative imagination. So the next one is the well of living water. Um, this one's just really simple, and I like uh, doing it pictorially. So the gospel is... A well of living water in the desert, okay? Uh, you can totally laugh at my drawings if you want, whenever you want. Um, so, oh, cool, that's a, that's a two-sided pen. Okay, so there's a well of living water in the desert, and what are, what are we doing? Um, Jesus talks about being the living water, you know, and this idea that you need Jesus, and he is... All you need, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, bread, water. Jesus is the living water. He who thirsts comes to me, I'll give him water. You've got a lot of biblical stuff related to water, and, and Jesus becomes that living water for us. So that's, that's what it is. That's what is available to you. Something so amazing that if you got a drink of it, you would just, uh, if you were seeing things rightly, you would just want to be at the well drinking all the time. But that's not what we're doing. That's hardly what we're doing at all most of the time. And let me give you four different people. So here's someone over here. I'm going to put a smile on their face. And they're just, they're running uh, far away, okay? They're just far away. They're not running away from the well. They're just, they're just out here running around in the desert. They don't even know they're in the desert. They're happy. They think things are going great. They don't have any interest in this well over here. They try to stay far away from it. Um, they think it's silly. They have all kinds of reasons why the well is not for them. Okay, so people are in that place, spiritually speaking, with respect to God and Jesus living water. Then you've got, <clears throat> you've got people in church. Um, I was this for a long time. You've got people, and let me make kind of like this face, like squiggly, kind of uh, just, you know, 
that was supposed to be like just kind of nervous and and there's a lot of energy being spent and a lot of uncertainty and anxiety and they're running and uh, those are weird legs so they're running and uh, um, they're well, here's what they're doing they're running around this uh, but they never stop to take a drink you've seen this you've, you've been there probably so you're running around and you're going uh, okay I'm at church you know, I'm in Bible study, I'm at a small group, I'm at a campus ministry, whatever your case may be, I'm doing the Christian thing, the religious thing, the Jesus thing. I'm fascinated with what does it mean to follow Jesus, really do a good job of following Jesus. And you can be running around this well so, so hard and so constant that you actually, it's always about something new or it's always about adding on something or always about new information and it never ends up being that you've got stopped and gotten a taste and drank from the well. It's very common. I was this for a long time. So that's another person. And then there's people that do that so much that they become convinced that there really is no, no water there, that it's, that it's just not worth it. And so they sort of come around the well and end up going on a trajectory out here. And, uh, you know, the artistry continues. Uh, but they're actually, they're kind of, let me do a mad face. There's an eyebrow there. They're mad, and they're never coming back, they think, to this. And they're gone, and... And they're just running. It's like they did this is it centrifugal force or something. Like they spun around and they're just gone. Um, their, their thing is, I want to get away from the well. And then there's some people who... Um, there's some people... There's a lot of people right outside the door of this room right now. There's some people who... It's kind of imagine like eyes closed. Uh, stick person again. But they've... You know, they're kind of like this. They're, at their, they're on their knees at the well. They've gotten a taste. Maybe they finally stopped from running around. They finally like, oh my gosh, the whole point is just to stop and take a drink. Oh. And it's just there for me. I don't have to run for it. I don't have to try to hydrate with my own sweat, you know, going around. That doesn't work. And so um, finally, you get on your knees and you take a sip and you realize how good it is and you kind of plant yourself. This is the gospel. And a gospel life is you plant yourself in a rhythm where you, as much as possible, are stopping and kneeling down and taking a drink. Because you've, t- you've tasted it now. You, God can be using running around it for a long, long time to teach you all kinds of good things about that water. And that can be a way God brings you to the well um, so that you'll finally get a taste. But then, the, you know, then there's this new trajectory of now I'm committed to, to making sure I'm drinking from it regularly. Um, there's another way. There's other ways you can run into the well. You can be run. You can be this guy, um, or this guy. You know, the ones running far away from it, or or directly away from it. And all of a sudden, the well can. This is real creative sci-fi imagination. The well can all of a sudden just drop out of the sky in front of you, and you get smacked by it. And you just you know, maybe Apostle Paul um, would be the, an example. And you just it's like in front of you, and you realize there's a well, and you're drinking from it, and it's good. You know. Um, that can happen. This guy can run away and get exhausted and, and fall on the ground and then in exhaustion and thirst just kind of look up and wonder if he's seeing a mirage and realize that somehow miraculously he fell right in front of the well. You know, it can happen in all these different ways that eventually someone who's not drinking from the well gets the well and gets a taste of it and it finally clicks that it's good and that it satisfies. So the questions that follow this one... Uh, which best describes you? Running away from the well. 
running in circles around the well, attempting to hydrate with my own sweat. Running away, but falling on my face, looking up and realizing I collapsed right in front of the well. Uh, or the well jumped out in front of me and forced me to stop. Um, or I want to kneel at the well and drink. I sure hope this works. Um, or I've tasted the water once, but I'm running again. When will I ever learn? Okay, so, so like I said, as you, as you do this, you might, you might find you don't know, you don't have an answer, but somewhere in here, hopefully, one of these things works for you to, to analyze yourself a little bit. So God the bartender is, uh, is, is this is the most uh, non-biblical one of all of them. Um, but it comes from a, a quote that I want to read to you by an unknown medieval English writer who said, um, gosh, this is really old English, God doth, or so, so doth God Almighty to his, lo- to his lovers in contemplation as a taverner that hath good wine to sell doth to drinkers. So he's comparing God to the people he wants to be in relationship with to a taverner who wants who pe- people to be happy who drink uh, a bar owner to drink you know the drink that he provides. He taketh them to house and giveth them a taste. So when they have tasteth thereof and they think the drink good and greatly to their pleasure, then they drink day and night. And the more they drink, the more they want. Such liking they have of that drink that of none other wine they they think. So they don't think of any other wine but only for to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. So they put everything into getting that drink. And then Simon Tugwell is an author, I think he's a Catholic writer, and he, he comments on this old quote, and he says, God himself, like a shrewd taverner, has come to us first to seduce us from the narrow path of worldly duty to know the sweetness of his love. So, so let me... Let me uh, let me add like the mark layer to this in a, in a new drawing. Uh, so there's this, uh, there's like a, a tavern out. And I always like kind of the desert because that's life without God. So there's a tavern in the middle of the desert. And, um, and it sort of has uh, a porch over here that, uh, you know, it's got stairways going down. It's very inviting, actually. It's got this porch. And inside is, uh, symbolizing God, is, is, this, is this generous, winsome uh, bartender who has the best, take your choice, you know, Northern California, wine or beer. Maybe you're a microbrewer or something. So, so take your pick. But he's got the best drink, the best way to satisfy thirst. It's amazing. You never taste anything like it, Okay. And, uh, and you get, you know, the doors over here. It's easy entry. There, it's right there. And um, so there it is. But where are we most of the time? You know, God's in here every day shouting out, you know, hey, this one's on the house, you know, and trying to get us to come in, trying to, to entice people with the good drink that he's so proud of, so excited to share. And there's this little spigot of like nearly polluted well water off the back of the tavern, you know, right on the edge of the desert. Back here is desert, you know. And I picture most of us, a lot of the time, our spiritual story is um, we're back here 
drinking from the spigot of intoxic, like in toxic water that um, works as a spiritual intoxicant for us. So uh, they're singing happy birthday in the other room. Um, so, you know, you're over here. Boy, that guy's really funny. And uh, this stick figure. And uh, you've got your hands out, and you're just kind of every day coming and just settling. Settling for something that's bad for you, that's like messing you up inside, that's not good. And right over here, uh, you know, coming out, echoing off the walls and into the outside, all the area around, is this voice saying, there's a, you know, there's a bar seat with your name on it, and this drink is ready, and it's on the house. Come on in and enjoy it. And um, God's hope is that you'll step in and you'll realize this is where you're supposed to be. You know, this is, um, this is where you belong, just sitting here enjoying what I have to offer you. Um, so please just stop, you know, why do you go to the, why do you go to the spigot off the back, you know? Um, as you, you know, as you spend your life in the desert out here, but just kind of come only to hear and drink from something that's polluted that's not. Um, I just like that, the, the contrast of that in terms of thinking about the gospel. So in my life, the question goes, the spigot of unclean water off the back of the pub is, you know, so you might think of something that resonates with like, what, you know, what's driving you? What, what do you go to instead of uh, the grace of God? And then in my life, the bartender's winsome call to me saying, this one's on the house is drowned out by what, right? So like kind of what's the noise in your life that, that just, you're just, you just don't hear it, you know? If you would listen, if you would find a way to, to minimize the noise, uh, maybe find a way to be closer to the door of the, of the tavern or to be more frequently in on, at the seat that has your name on it. All right, so that's one of my favorite because it's sort of my creative weirdness added to some, the biblical idea of like living water. Um, let me just hit a couple other things that might go kind of quick. Um, wounds and healing. So in the Bible, you get a lot of ideas of like Jesus is the great physician. Um, you know, a lot of images of sin and brokenness and woundedness. So let me just talk about the gospel real briefly in terms of being of wounded and, and wounding and, and uh, finding healing. Um, so according to the Bible, the problem of sin enters the world and we, we are wounded and we are wounders. So, so we're wounding people, but we're also wounded because of sin, because things aren't working right in relationships. Um, and it all stems, the Bible says, you know, you can analyze it psychologically, family of origin, you can analyze all these different levels, sociologically, economically, you know, oppression, um, injustice, but the Bible kind of pulls that all back to one basic problem, one basic wound, which is alienation from God. It's like our, it's like this stamped wound on our hearts. Alienation from God. You know, you go back to the, um, to the, to the fall of, in Genesis, and it's like, you know, this basic distrust of God. And God might be holding on, out on me. I don't know that I trust. I'm going to believe that maybe 
trusting God might not be the best way. So, and it, it, we kind of alienate ourselves from God by not trusting God. We go alone. In the way, I like the way Colossians 1 uh, puts, puts this, is that um, in terms of like the turnaround of the gospel, um, let me just read this. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that like we, our alienation from God leaves us in darkness instead of light. But the gospel says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is the um, reconciliation with God. We're reconciled to God, that, which heals the wound of alienation. Okay? Um, and so being a Christian or, or connecting with God means yielding my wounds entirely to God, the great physician. So this goes even more like, you know, there's like big wound, like big sin, big idea of just alienation from God. But then it, that we can see then kind of like the micro wounds in our lives. We can see how we've been wounded, people have wronged us, and we've wronged others, and we've broken relationships. And you can come, you can come into just like, you know, adolescence already with, Tremendous. I mean, I've, you know, you talk to people's stories. Tremendous woundedness already, just because of the mess of sin, that's all traced back to the alienation from God. Um, that's you know, parental stuff. You know, just all kinds of terrible stuff we can go through. And the answer is in uh, the one who heals us through forgiveness of sins. Jesus reconciles with us with God, and we can bring all our wounds and find the real healing uh, in Him. And so we might go, you know, you have a wound or whatever, and I'll, well, this is almost done, this, and we'll move on to the, to the next one. Nothing will heal the deepest woundedness uh, of your alienation from God. Nothing can get at that. And so you might find solutions in all kinds of ways to get at, you know, kind of mini wounds, small wounds. But you'll always be kind of running to one other thing and one other solution and thinking maybe this will work a little better, maybe this, and, and different things will be kind of true and good. Um, but they'll never, you'll never be like, I've got all the healing I need right here. You know, that kind of thing. That's what the gospel offers. So that's another way of looking at it, which is powerful if you have, like, a lot of wounds in your story. Okay, so you know, here's something from a theologian called Scott McKnight, number five, uh, Cracked Icons. You know what, I didn't, I didn't read the thing, but number four, the best way to describe my spiritual wound or woundedness is. So there's a blank there um, if something resonates with that. Okay, so the next one is cracked icons. Um, the cracked icon thing is language that Scott McKnight uses. It taps into a word that I believe is uh, Greek. Uh, I don't actually remember now. Icon, I think, is Greek. Do you know, Dan? Yeah, and, then, and, and the idea is it taps into the, some of the language of the creation of humankind in the Bible. So... So the idea, you know the language of Genesis 1, um, male and female, he created them in the image of God they were created. Um, and, and of course, this, this taps into some kind of historical ways of viewing uh, having an image bearer or your image if you're a king in a, in a land that you are the king of. So you might not reside there, but your power is exerted there. Um, you're in charge of that area, so you might put up an, uh, an image of yourself 
that, um, you know, that, that kind of symbolizes your rule. And this actually is kind of what, where some of this comes from in, the, in Genesis 1, is that the idea that, okay, he makes this whole world, but then the crown of creation is these image bearers who then, just like kind of the idea that a king's image in the land um, sort of just centers everything and, and symbolizes how this rule creates shalom and peace and righteousness and justice. And things are, things are the way they are meant to be. Same with, like, humankind in this world. Like, there's that effect. There's that level of importance, responsibility, um, how humanity and as the crown of creation kind of ties everything together. But also that, that idea that, like, if that image is in place and really reflecting God, God's rule, uh, the way he made it to reflect God's rule, then everything's kind of in place. And so then that kind of makes sense of how, how, how deeply troubling the fall is. You know? So then Adam and Eve uh, th- have this alienation from God. They become a cracked icon. Okay? So they become like a statue that's broken that now, now symbolizes and kind of creates the beginning echoes of brokenness and alienation from God and God's rule not playing out. And um, this is just kind of one of those bigger picture things that I really like because it, it makes the gospel more big about all creation, which is really true in the Bible. There is this, this big thread of like, it's not just about me, it's not just about my wounds, although it is about that. It's also about this big thing of like all of creation and how humankind like was an image bearer. And that, that fall really messed things up and really broke and has this ripple effects everywhere. All, everything is tied to the fall of humankind. You know, you read the newspaper and you see all oh, this brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. It's disturbing. And the Bible says that all comes from broken, from cracked icons. Um, and so then what is the gospel? Okay, so that's, that's the problem. And guess what? In the Bible, it's pretty cool because that's all already there, already in Genesis 3. Like, you've got the whole Bible, like, to deal with the rest. Like, it's kind of interesting to think about that. Like, that's, that just is kind of like, okay, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, okay, boom. Could have been this, it broke, now it's all messed up, so what's God going to do about it? So then that's where the gospel comes into play. And I'll just fast, fast forward. I don't have a lot of material to, you know, the Bible's full of material on this, but I don't have a lot to elaborate on except just to say, what is the final answer? As God walks this whole story, keep entering in with creation, what is the big punchline? Um, Colossians 1 says, um, Jesus... Think about this. I'll just put it in terms of, I won't put it in terms of Colossians 1 yet, but think about it this way. Jesus is God visiting his cracked creation, and he's now the perfect, he's the restored icon. He's the perfect icon. He's the perfect image because we're cracked and we can't do that. We can't be that anymore. We need help. We can't achieve it. It's too broken beyond our ability to get it back. God's grace is he enters into this brokenness and, and he, the perfect image bearer, actually presents the ability for it to, now the image bearer has come to visited creation and has shown himself, but then also the, this like mysterious part of it is that he took on the brokenness. So he became cracked, you know, like he took, he took on all the force of the brokenness and crackness and he allowed himself on the cross to be broken for all of this creation to be healed and restored. 
And that's the gospel for creation. And he actually is our, he restores us to that place where we can start to image God again like we're intended. And we're a work in progress, right? So don't get too excited about the fact that I just said that because it sounds like grid. We're all going to be perfect again. But you do, that is the idea is that through Jesus on the cross, you know, it becomes possible to catch glimpses even in your own life of being a restored image bearer of God in this creation. So that's just a, I mean, think about it. These are all different ways of looking at what has God done that, that we learn in the Bible that we talk about as the good news in the gospel. Um, all right. I have to skip something. So, or I have to just go really fast on something. So let me just look here a second. I have idolatry left. I have fruit of the spirit left. And I have um, number eight. Okay, so the, the question for number five is, because I am a cracked icon, I can see damage and fallout in this area of my life. Some of you are wishing there were like 15 blanks there. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, uh, I'm, you know, just be concise, you know. <laughs> Which one's the worst? <laughs> no. Uh, you, what I'm going to do, I was going to do a longer version of idolatry, and I'll just, I'll just go really quick. Because I had a little sound bite that I was going to play of a sermon that gets into this. It was two and a half minutes long. I'll just skip it and give you the summary. Um, this guy, uh, Bruce Watke, he basically says in this, this passage on uh, Psalm 63, which is about God satisfying our thirst, he says, a false god is something in which you put your security and significance. So what is your false god? That's kind of the question. Where do you go for your security and your significance? It really, it's a question that you, sort of, you can just find your answer every day. Every day. You can say, basically, if I get backed in a corner, what is it that I say, well, if this happens, I'll be okay. Well, if I have this together in my life, I'll be okay. Um, he goes through, in this, this thing I was going to play for you, he goes through, like, money, uh, good looks, um, and youth. Uh, what else does he do? Um, power. And then he talks about the ability to teach. He kind of jokes it off, like, if you don't have any of those, then maybe you're like me. You don't have money, you don't have power, you don't have good looks. He's like an old guy. He says, you're liable to find in your ability to teach, which is very insightful to me as a pastor because I can find, I can make preaching a false god. Like, man, if I did this well, if I got a lot of feedback, then I'm okay. I can make my identity about that, my security, my significance on something other than God. And so these are false gods. The answer in, in the truth is, so um, the gospel says, I'm going to skip a little bit just so it's more concise. The gospel says, only God is powerful enough forgiving enough to give you the significance that you're craving. There's you know, these areas of your life where you're, you're saying, ah, oh, it'll be okay if. But it won't. It actually, you, you'll, you'll still need more. You'll still want more. You'll still go to the next thing. That won't satisfy. It'll be almost like an addict to going to the drug and needing more and more. Only God can actually be the thing that really gives you, really restores the significance that your soul, somewhere deep down, you know, I'm significant and I need... You know, I fully need this deep level of significance. And God says, yes, you do. And only I can restore it. And we don't tend to trust 
God alone to give it to us. We've got all these false gods. And so, of course, you've got to bring it all back to the cross. On the cross, he um, completely restored our significance. He did this great switcheroonie where Jesus the Son, who has, uh, as the Bible talks about Jesus the Son, has all the ultimate significance. He is, he is with God. He was before creation. He was with God at creation. He is, he's one with God. And he comes down and he actually um, takes our place so that we can end up having that place of significance with God, so that um, what is said about Jesus, what is true about Jesus, when he takes our place, becomes how God views us and sees us and wants us to see ourselves. Um, with, the, with the status of being a child of God, of being having really the record of Jesus, the clean, pure, perfect record of Jesus because he stood in our place. Um, so that's significance, to be a child of God, to be fully adopted, embraced as a child of God. That's the gospel um, that answers our idolatry where we go for for our significance or our false gods. So um, the question's right there. I already asked it. You know, I'll be okay through this if... And that's the answer of the, kind of the idolatry false god. Um, so let me just talk about how the gospel works. So if, if, you, um, if, if something like all of those pictures I just gave actually has you finally drinking the living water, you know, finally trusting God alone and, and, and having that sort of life motto, even though you don't do a very good job of it, you're now saying, I'm going to trust God alone, I'm going to trust God alone. So if you're finally at that place, what happens? You know? um, well, what happens is change starts to happen um, through the gospel. And it takes time, it's organic, and it's incremental, so don't, but it really does actually happen. It's not... Sometimes there's miraculous things that happen. Sometimes there's fits and start. There's fast periods of growth. Usually it's incremental. Usually it's slow. But it, is, it happens. So two pictures of that. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is the first one. Um, you, you know, in the, in the Galatians, I think chapter 520 is where it is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, let me just say a thing or two about the fruit of the Spirit, how that works, because it's a biological analogy, where in this analogy, the gospel is the gospel. How's the gospel? So the, there's fruit of the Spirit, and you read it, and you go, I want, okay, I want, there's a list, and we all love lists. We're like church people. We're like, it's a list. Uh, love, joy, peace. Okay, I'm going to put it on my wall. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try really hard. Okay, but it doesn't work that way, um, because it's organic, and fruit actually comes from something that's been cultivated and that, that is not fruit. There's the other parts that are creating the fruit. So the fruit is an end result. So you can't just go, uh, I'm, I'm going to just stare at fruit. I'm going to make fruit. I'm going to be over here just making fruit out of, out of nothing or out of my religious effort. Um, the gospel is the roots and the branches. Um, and you might say the soil. You know, the gospel is all those things that uh, come into you to create fruit eventually. Um, Fruit is genuine expressions of the gospel's effect on your heart. Okay, so do you get the sense of two different ways of going at that? So that you'd be like, okay, I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to do the fruit. You actually don't, you don't get the fruit. It's very superficial, it's false, it's not, it's not the real fruit. You just, it's just like someone walking around with a plastic you know, smile on their face. Like, oh, I'm joyful, oh, and, oh I'm real gentle. You know? it, it's, just, it's not real, it's just I'm putting it on because I'm trying really hard to be these things I'm supposed to be. Um, and it does, it can create a dilemma because you're like, I'm terrible at this fruit. And it's like, yes, exactly. 
You need God's help. You need the gospel. You need it given to you. Um, and so, um, what does the gospel say about this? Uh, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus talks in another place about good soil. Remember the parable of the different uh, types of ground that seed gets put into? Okay. So we take both of those and think, okay, how do I get connected to the vine? Um, how do I get connected to the vine? And then uh, how do I get good soil? Right? Like how do I, because there's this kind that's described as being rocky, that the seed comes and it just sprouts really fast, but then it's choked because it's rocky and there's, it's, it's actually not rooted well. It's, it's, the soil's not good enough and it gets kind of choked out maybe by weeds. There's these different soils that aren't good. How do I get good soil? Well, um, the gospel says, basically, you need a trustworthy connection to the vine. Okay, so take the vine thing. How do I get connected to the vine? You need a trustworthy connection to the vine. How do I get that? Do I create it? No, you don't. I am the vine. And Jesus makes a trustworthy connection to you on the cross. That's the only way. It's the only way to get connected and reconnected and reconnected and reconnected over and over in your life to the vine, which is going to make fruit. Is the, it's the only hope that you'll ever have fruit is to be connected to Jesus, which he did when he died on the cross for you. So you have to believe that he did that for you. It has to be, you, have to, you have to look at it and say, that's for me. And you have to understand how it connects and how you needed that. And you can't create fruit on your own. And so you kind of have to yield to that connection that he established and really let go of a lot because most of us want to make our own vine. And how do you, make, how do you, get, um, how do you get your soil? How do you get good soil? You know? That's a real, even more puzzling, right? Like, how can you even imagine what happens that I would have good soil? Um, and again, you're just kind of left throwing up your hands. Um, I think the Bible, a lot of times in the New Testament, a lot of Jesus' teachings are meant to have us just throwing up our hands. Like, how the heck am I going to do that? That's impossible. How am I going to do all the things in the Sermon on the Mount? That's such a high standard. I can't do that. And I think a lot of it is exactly. You can't on your own. You need the teacher who's teaching you these things. It needs to convict you to say, I need God, I need forgiveness, I need to be reconnected with God through something I can't do. So how do you, how do you get good soil? I think you've got to let the gardener come in and compost you know, your, your heart. You know, like, you've got all this junk, and I do composting um, in my backyard, and it's just like such an imperfect kind of process. You start with just these, like, these, the grossest stuff, the, you know, the, from the kitchen, the scraps and everything, and other things from the yard, and it just all mixes together. But, uh, the, you know, the soil, actually it takes work and it takes a little knowledge to know um, how to do it. Or if you want to go the long process, it takes worms to do it. But the stuff in there itself is not doing it to itself. It's, it takes work and it takes a combination of water and turning and nitrogen and oxygen. And eventually you have good soil. I think that that's... That's the idea of yielding to the gardener of your heart. You know, and just putting yourself at the gardener's feet and saying, I want to have fruit someday. Will you compost my heart? Will you take a lot of the junk? You know, will you take a lot of the junk that's in my life and just like make some good soil out of it so that your word can plant itself and grow through the vine of Jesus and create good fruit? So that's, that's I think, how, that's how then, with the gospel in your life, that's how things start to change. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut off uh, the, uh, 
Well, maybe I'll just say real briefly that I'm, I'm fascinated by Colossians chapter 2, which is dealing with religious rules and so forth. Um, okay, I did it again. I went ahead. So let me just rephrase the two questions of fruit of the Spirit. The only way to get connected to the vine is... Um, these are actually more like right or wrong answers as opposed to personal things. The only way to get good soil for the gospel is yielding to the gardener for composting. My heart. See, this is such a Mark twist on the gospel. Mark Holland's gospel. Um, someday you're going to go to some other church and you're going to be like, my pastor said, you know, my heart needs to be composted. He needs to be like, that was a heretic who told you that. <laughs> what kind of crazy church? Um, uh, I'm fascinated with this, but I'm not going to go in depth with it. But there's this fascinating verse in Colossians 2, it's verse 23, that uh, is, says, says that, um, that these religious rules that the writer Paul is writing against, that are becoming a problem in this community, that they have no value in restraining sensual indulgence. And to me, that is like a, that's a way into the gospel because it's so counterintuitive. Um, it, it just creates this dilemma of, wait a second, so if I try really hard and put boundaries in place and do all these things to try to be a good person, that there's still this underlying, what the Bible calls the flesh, you know, the, the sinful nature that's a part of me that hasn't been touched yet, but I put all these barriers and restraints. And you can go to a lot of churches and they say, you know, you got to do this and you got to put these boundaries in your life. you got to stay away from sin. you got to stay away from this. you got to do this. And, you, and you, know, you can put all these rules in place and everything. And, and what that passage is saying, sh- you know, shocking, is like you, you haven't even gotten to the surface. Those things are just uh, damage control, you know, superficial. As soon as you take that one barrier up and open the floodgates, you can see this, you can see this in the fall of, of religious leaders often, public figures, where, um, I mean, they're, they're preaching every week and they got all the rules and they got their whole life together. Um, and, it, and it all kind of just falls apart. Because, you know, on a, on a business trip wherever, at a preaching conference over here, then they're, suddenly they're in a hotel and there's some scandal. And, and, and you know, there was, there was suddenly a little opening and there was, no, there was nothing that touched the sensual indulgence underneath. Um, and that can be all kinds of things I put here. So, so basically what the gospel does, and what I like about Colossians 2, is that it basically gets at how... Um, um, if you read a kind of the context around that, um, you have this idea of you, haven't, you have to nail your sins to the cross. Like God nailed our sins to the cross and kind of killed them. The only way to get at the underlying stuff is through the cross and it applying to our life and us driving it down and constantly nailing our brokenness, bringing it only to Jesus. Jesus' forgiveness, not our sin management, is the thing that truly gets it underneath the surface. Although I'm a big fan of in certain in areas of my life in having accountability and having these things because it actually is just like really smart pursuit of God and having the gospel more in your life and having other things not distracting it. But you have, you have to get under the surface as well. So I had some stuff that I was going to do about that. Um, and I'm going to skip and just go right to three things. Three very practical points. Um, I was going to I was going to talk about how workaholism is sensual indulgence and how you might put all these barriers in place about workaholism and it might have all these great effects but actually any religion in the world could actually do the same thing any 
any philosophy or practice can put those same barriers in place, have the same effects. And actually, it hasn't, it's, just, it's just some barriers in place. Your heart hasn't been touched yet. Why am I a workaholic? You know, and you can take any issue like this. Why do I do that? You know, why do I have this, this sexual thing over here? Or why do I have this, 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 this drive to comfort? Or why do I have this eating thing over here? So you can go through all these issues and say, okay, okay, I managed it. You know, I, I went to you know, Weight Watchers or something like that. You know? Uh, you know, I had accountability. But, but what, what's underneath that I go to that? You know, that I have that drive that is untouched yet. So that's, that's kind of where you can go with the gospel with that as a workaholic or something else. So here's some other pictures of gospel change, and then we'll just, we'll just wrap up. Three things I have at the end here. What does it look like when you have gospel change in your life? Let's take the issue of anger. Let's take the issue of appearance and beauty. Let's take the issue of accomplishments. So before the gospel gets into your life, you say, you know, I used to get angry... And why do people get angry? Any just guesses? Like, what are, why do we get angry? What's, what's at stake? Like, what's happening when we get angry? A pride. Yeah. Any other things come to mind? That's great. What came to mind when I thought of it, pride is totally hand-in-hand hand with anger. I didn't have that down. Um, I'm not getting what I deserve. Or there's an un- unjust thing going on here. I'm not being respected or I'm not getting the attention I need. I'm not getting what I deserve. What does the gospel do to that? So you're someone with an ang- anger problem, you know. Uh, what does the gospel do? You could go to anger management and it would put, you know, these strictures in place maybe, but it might not get underneath and say, I'm going to deal with the anger where it was coming from, the sensual indulgence. What does the gospel do? Very simple. God, through Jesus Christ, gives you all the attention, you know, he comes for you, he restores you as his child, Uh, he gives you all the attention you ever craved, way more than you deserve, he gives you a position in in this world and in his, in, uh, in relationship to him that you don't deserve, he gives you the respect that you were made for, but that you haven't deserved in how you behaved, Um, and the injust, the injustice, the kind of like the the um, heaping burning coals on your head about this whole thing, like the the kicker is that the injustice and the disrespect and the attention, lack of attention and alienation all went on his son um, instead of on you. So if you're someone with, if you're a person with an anger problem, the gospel can really speak to that specifically. You can can say, what do I now have in Jesus Christ? And um, and you can apply it, and it's going to take forever because you have these habits of why you get angry, and you have these triggers and everything. But anger can actually be, you can have sort of the self-talk in your head once you know the gospel of like, no, 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 no. God decided not to be angry with me when he deserved my love. He deserved all my attention. He deserved, and he chose to be patient and to meet me and to restore the relationship rather than being angry. And the anger went on his son, so he sacrificed his anger in a sense. So you can, you, the gospel can speak to this. You can start to say, ah, you know, how do I apply that? How do I not get angry? I, and you can actually start to be like, I don't need to be angry. Your heart can actually start to be changed, that you just don't get angry as much because your issues of respect and attention and deserving have just all been started to be satisfied, really, in your heart through the gospel. That's anger. Take appearance. I used to be uh, wrapped up in how people see me, you know, imagine, you know, I, all I care about is beauty and appearance. If Man, if I realize that I've been out in public with a, for two hours with a piece of avocado on my forehead, you know, 
like from the meal, I would just be devastated and want to crawl up and die because like I care so much about how I'm perceived and how I look and having it all together. Um, what is, how does the gospel speak to it? You know, and you can talk about like weight or like getting old and gray and wrinkles or whatever. That's your idol. How does God change that? Well, it's all in how God sees you. Because you start to say, well, how does God see me now as someone who's been invited back into his presence as his child through Jesus on the cross? Um, God sees me. uh, And actually, you start to say, God sees me as his child. This is perfect, beautiful child. It's the words that he spoke to Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. And you say, that's, oh, when I was chasing after beauty and looks and appearance, I was actually longing to hear someone say that about me and mean it and have it be lifelong lasting. In you, I'm well pleased. I look at you and you're beautiful, you know. In you, I'm well pleased. And finally, in God, I actually hear that voice. And it's not because of superficial things that I hold together. It's just he just decided to love me that much. So that can start to get in deep into the cracks of your life and into your heart. And you can start to just be a lot, you can, you know, you can go from being like, you know, you become a hippie, you know. You just like let it all go, right? Because, you know. I don't know. So that's, I'm, you know, uh, being a Christian will make you a hippie, basically, is what I'm saying with that point. I mean, let's just say accomplishments, because we're all wrapped up in our accomplishments. Um, you start out, all, the, all that matters is measuring up. Voices in your head say, don't be lazy. Don't be a failure. Make a good life for yourself. What happens when you become a Christian when the gospel starts to sink into your life? There's new voices. There's new voices that say to you, you are my daughter. You are my son. In you already I am well pleased uh, because I see you every day through the lens of the cross and the cross accomplished everything that you might think you need to still accomplish. So, you know, you're worried about accomplishments. You're worried about measuring up. There's a new voice. All the, I measure you through Jesus' accomplishments. They're done. So what are your accomplishments for? Like what's left for you to do? That's, that's a very Christian thing to say. Holy cow. All the stuff I was chasing after to do and accomplishments, I want to, I want to prove myself. That's all done. I'm, I'm proved already through Christ. Now, well, now what do I do with my life? Well, now I just kind of like say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? You know, like now you just serve. Now you just act out of gratitude. Now your stuff is not about you and measuring up. It's just about a response to God's grace. That's how. That's the new voice in your head that the gospel starts to change. Um, and that's it. That's all I got.